Looking for hair removal tools that not only deliver smooth results, but also make you feel totally in control? Enter Conair Girlbomb. They're like your secret weapons for smooth, sleek results, made just for us. From the ultimate girl bomb grip to the professional grade blades, say goodbye to settling for less. With Conair Girl Bomb, you get the precision and power that used to only be exclusive to men's tools. So take your hair removal routine to the next level with Conair Girl Bomb, available at Walgreens. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals. It's not about being the best in the world. It's about doing what's best for the world. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Farm to store in days, not weeks. That's 80 Acres Farms. Did you know most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate? But not 80 Acres Farms. Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's zero need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. Actor, author, producer, playwright, and game show host. Hmm. Today's guest, Asif Manvi, is nothing if not versatile. You'll recognize the actor from his roles in Blue Bloods, a series of unfortunate events on Netflix, and The Daily Show with Jon Stewart as a long-term correspondent. He currently stars in Evil on Paramount Plus and hosts the CW panel show Would I Lie to You? But there's more than meets the eye with this multifaceted performer. Monvi trained in Shakespeare, Ibsen, and Chekhov, and his theater credits include both work on Broadway and the Pulitzer Prize-winning play Disgraced. In the late 90s, Asif Monvi wrote and starred in the off-Broadway one-man show Sakina's Restaurant, which earned him an Obie Award. Monvi shared with me how his level of adaptability came to be. Born in Mumbai, India, and raised in Bradford, England, he lived in Bahrain for the first years of his life, separated from his parents. I wanted to know what those formative years were like for him. My grandmother and my grandfather lived in Bahrain, which is uh, right off the coast of Saudi Arabia, in uh, a little island, one of the wealthiest places in the world. My great-grandfather had gone to Bahrain in the like early 1900s and started a business there. And my grandfather had a huge toy store in, in, in the capital city of Bahrain. So my grandparents lived there for part of the year. So I went and lived with them in Bahrain when I was a year and a half old. For how long? Till I was three. So was it over a year? Was it a- Yeah. It's interesting, like the, the times at that time, because they sent me on a plane by myself to Bahrain from London. And I was like, dad, did you not? I asked my dad recently actually about this. I was like, were you not concerned? And, and, and he, I think he was just like, at that time, we just didn't really worry about it. We didn't, we didn't think about what kind of psychological impact that would have on you or even the danger of it. We just sort of gave you to the airline. The stewardess was very nice. She said, we'll take care of him. We didn't really think about it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It was sort of that. It was, 
It was like it was like the stewardess was really nice and she was going to take care of you and and we put you on the plane she and your grandmother like a nice met woman. you. Yeah. And my grandmother met me on the other side, you know. Um, and, well, this is like in a pre-9-11 world, there was more of that. And now, post-9-11, of course, it's, it's a different world. But do you recall at all what it was like when you reunited with them? Yeah, it's actually one of my very earliest memories is returning to London Heathrow with my grandmother and... Like it's 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 just a memory with shadows, and I, I I seem to remember my mother wearing a white sari, and she's got her arms reached out. But the the crazy part of it is, I didn't recognize, I didn't know who she was. So in the year wow. and a half that I was gone, I had forgotten about her, and and I I'd sort of acclimated myself to this other life, and now I was back, and she was like, "I'm your mom," and I just remember like that feeling of holding on to my grandmother's arm and just being mm. like, what's going on here? You know, like, who are these, mm. who are these strangers? But then my grandparents stayed with me and my parents. They stayed with us for the next six months or so. For the transition. For the transition back into the, into the UK. Are both your parents alive now? My mother's not alive. My father is alive, yeah. Did either one of them articulate to you in your adult life their feelings about that period, with how difficult it was for them. Yeah, my mother talked about it a lot. It was hard for her to talk about. You know, it was, it was, she was a young girl who didn't have a great deal of agency around it. I think it was her father's decision to, to have me go back and live with the, him and my grandmother and, and because he just wanted my parents to get on their feet a little bit more settled. And, and I think, you know, in India, Kids are raised in large communal families. So that kind of idea, you know, the grandparents and uncles and aunts and everybody sort of raises, at least my my mother came from that kind of family where everybody lived together and it was very communal and people raised each other. So there was very much that sense of like, oh, you know, we'll send him over there. And, and so my mother did talk about it later in life of how difficult it was for her in that time when you know she's working, she's doing this job at this television uh-huh. factory where she's on a conveyor belt uh-huh. with like, you know, TVs in this foreign land and her child is is halfway across the world. I think it was really, really difficult for her and and and, and she couldn't talk about it that much. It was the one thing in her life that I think it was the first thing she would have changed in her life, I think, had she been able to. Well it's interesting how I wonder if there's a commonality here. I find very often that people who are asked to grow up quickly, even if only to negotiate one condition like that, you know, the transfer at a very early age to the grandparents and come back and things like that, and you have to manage your feelings about that, that gives people, I find, who are performers and actors, a bit of an edge. Not everyone has this. Mm Mm-hmm. Not everyone has it to the same degree, but it gives them kind of a confidence and a kind of command because they've gotten through things from an early age that were difficult to get through. Yeah. In your acting and your performances, you have an authority to you. You could play the head of the FBI that runs in there and says, okay, man, here's what you know. You, you, you could do any of these things. You can kiss the girl. You can go, say, all right, men, code zero, and we're going in. There's a lot of things you can do, and I always wonder if that ephemeral quality that people have. Yeah. Like when people say to me, I'll play parts, and I'll play some really, really tough, 
mean character. They, they always want to hire me to play the guy that straightens people out. <laughs> and what I say is, I say, it's acting. I say, if I don't do it, I get fired. So I go in there, and it's acting, meaning it has nothing to do with me and who I am. I just, but, but I have inside me the confidence to jump off that cliff and make those choices that are stronger choices mm -hmm. because of certain conditions of my own life. You know what I mean? Your life wasn't all candy canes and unicorns. You know what I mean? And, and, and maybe that empowers you. Yeah, I mean, I think that there was a, a certain level of probably some of the, the stuff that I dealt with, you know, growing up sort of a lot, forced me sometimes, I think, to access my imagination mm -hmm. and... You know, I was a very imaginative child that was creating like little, uh, we used to have the old cassette tapes and I would, I would do like radio plays when I was like seven or eight years old, you know? Yeah. And they were sort of like Monty Python-esque sort of like these little, you know, and, and so I was very, there was a lot of escapism for me as a kid, you know, like escaping out of the sort of the depression of living in the North of England. My parents were struggling and they were very loving and they were a very loving home, but the circumstances I lived in, and I think also as an immigrant and a, and a brown kid in a white world at that time, there was an adaptability that I had to find. I had to be mm. able to fit in. I had to be able mm. to like figure out how to adapt quickly. And charm you. And, and yeah, and use whatever your humor or whatever I could. Right. And I think that also, I mean, I think I had a proclivity towards performing, maybe you did too, from a very, I think that was part of my DNA, you know, like I just, but I think that it was probably helped along by this idea that like I, I knew I, I was sort of adaptable and, and mutable and, and felt like I had to be in order to survive. There was a lot of racism when I was a kid in the North of England. No, I want to talk about that. So when you get there, you come and you're there for some brief window, you leave and go to Bahrain and you come back, describe Bradford at that time. You see, and you yourself described, I'm a brown kid in a white world. Mm -hmm. What was it like for you there? It was, you know, my dad had a corner shop. Well, in New York, he'd call it a bodega. And my mom was helped him in the store. She was also a housewife. You know, and, and, and it was sort of a lower middle class life. It was a time when politically in England, the National Front was very powerful at that time, which was this very anti-immigrant sort of political party run by this guy named Enoch Powell. And so there was a lot of, of racism in the community and in the culture and in, and in the rhetoric. And in the rhetoric. And, and I do remember getting chased home by a band of kids after school and getting you know, let's go packy bashing and all that. Yeah. So I would get off the bus and and run, and 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 the kids would they would chase me and they would, and I would get caught in an alleyway and you'd have like four kids, you know what I mean, English kids and 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 that was a semi regular sort of occurrence, you know. Not to say that everyone was like that, but there was that that went on. And then I went to boarding school, which was a whole other level of insanity when I was uh, a little bit older, when I was thirteen, but. It's interesting because I, I look back on it now with a certain fondness for the place and, and the time, <laughs> but, but it was also like a weird, hard, 
you know, it wasn't, it wasn't like the, it, it was, it was a rough kind of upbringing, you know? When you finally leave and your father wants to go uh, over to the United States, mm-hmm. uh, he was in the, he wanted to get involved in some kind of textiles work, textile research. Well, he or? was doing, he was doing that in Bradford, but then he started his own business. Then he left and, and, and opened this corner shop and then he had like a little business and then he wanted to come to America and just, uh, you know, he was a, he wanted to open up a business. Now I'm not, I'm not a, I don't want to make it all about race, but when you leave Bradford and you have a, you know, whatever amount of that you have to deal with on a day-to-day basis, and then you come to Tampa, Florida, I'm not assuming <laughs> Tampa was the East Village of New York in terms of its enlightenment. What was that no. like, that transition? Why Tampa? Because my father had a college roommate who lived in Tampa. And my dad was originally wanting to move to Canada. And he'd always talked about going to Canada. This was the 80s, Thatcher's England. It was bad, the unemployment. My dad had a small business. He was like, we were doing okay, but he always sort of talked about going to Canada. And then he ran it. And then he called up this buddy of his who he went to school with in India. And this guy said, I'm living in Tampa and Florida is the future, man. You got to come. <laughs> you got to come. God. to he was like Tampa, It's the Florida, future, all right. It's the city of the it's future. It's the future, all right. <laughs> right. So, you know, I had grown up watching American movies, you know, Hollywood movies. That was my, like, escape as a kid. And so for me, the idea of living in America, I just thought my life was going to be like the movies, you know? It was going to be... And then I get to America, and, um, and so Tampa, Florida was my... I mean, I'd visited America when I was a kid. I'd gone to Disney World and all that, you know, but... But Tampa was like my introduction to what America was. And it was very, my, my, I went to high school. I, I was dropped right in the middle of this high school. And I just remember how white it was. And, and, and what was amazing was there were no Indian kids. Like, like Bradford had a large Indo-Pakistani community. There was a lot of- It did. There was a lot of racial strife, but there was a large community there in- Tampa, Florida, I was the only, I think I was one of two Indian kids in my high school. And the other Indian kid wouldn't talk to me because he saw me as a liability. So he was like, I'm not going to have anything to do with this new guy. They they think you and I are plotting. We're plotting. Right, right, exactly. He was like, he was kind of popular. He was in the band and you know what I mean? He wouldn't talk to me. And I remember in the cafeteria, all the black kids would sit on on one side and all the white kids would sit on the other side. Not because that was the way it was supposed to, that was just the way it divided up. Sure. Yeah. And it was like, there was no interaction. Like none of my sort of middle-class white friends hung out with any of the black kids. So it was really interesting, but I got into, um, I found my little drama click in high school and that's what really saved me. And who mentored you into that? Who emboldened you? Who comes to you and or, or, or what is inside of you that says, I want to hit the drama club or whatever the first rung on the ladder is? Well, my really, honestly, I, I give credit to my mother. So I had been in this very private English school when I was in England, and they didn't have drama class, but they had art. So I took art. But my mother knew that there was always a little bit of, I had sort of taken these after-school drama classes and stuff. I used to be part of this like children's theater group. So my mother knew that I enjoyed performing. And when I got to Tampa, 
you know, you go for the orientation to high in high school and, and they have these electives, which we didn't have in England. You know, it was all very, my school was very math, science, you know, biology, English, you know. And so they had these electives and you could take classes like psychology, which I was like, was very, very progressive, you know. And so on there was drama and I checked off art because I thought, well, that's, I've done that before. And, and my mom looked at me and she said, are you sure you want to do art? Because they have drama here. Unlike your school in England, they actually have a drama class. Wouldn't you rather do drama? I didn't even occur to me that that was a thing that you could do in school. Mm-hmm. And so I said, yeah, maybe I should do that. And so we scratched out art and we put in drama. And that's how I ended up uh, sixth period doing uh, drama class. And when you were there doing the drama class, what starts to take you, you know, is the more you do it, the more it deepens, the more you like it? Yeah, I think it was always, it was just always in me. And I, and I had, like I said, I'd been doing sort of like I was part of a children's theater company when I was in England, after school kind of thing. But just that became like my tribe, my sort of sanity, you know, like it just sort of, it was where I, it was. It good. was yeah, I mean, I think in my life, Acting has always been like a savior for me. You know, it, it saved me from the sort of stuff that I dealt with in my childhood, then landing in a new country, America, what do I make of this place that's all new? These people, you know, like I was this little English kid in America who's also, I was also brown, you know, and then suddenly there I was in drama class and these kids in drama class sort of, like I felt like this was my, pe- these were my people, you know, and 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 so I... Again, it was it was sort of felt like it saved me through that period of transition coming to America. And the first gig you get, I think, professionally, is you're working at Disney World. Is that correct? Yeah. So I ended up at USF, University of South Florida, in, in, in doing uh, theater, and uh, and I was, you know, my we still were not citizens of this country. We were still on a green card. So I couldn't get the in-state tuition and my parents were struggling and they were, you know, and so I was paying some ridiculous amount. Like I was paying it myself. I was like $400 a semester or something, or a credit for, for, so I was taking like, I was going very slowly through the, the curriculum and, and I, and I auditioned a bunch of my friends and I, they were opening up the MGM studios in Orlando, which was part of like the Disney complex over there. And a bunch of my friends in drama class said, Hey, we're going to go and audition. You know, they're looking for like improv actors. There's a comedy troupe. Great. I'll go. They wanted a monologue. And I, uh, and I had been working on this Eric Bogosian monologue in act in my scene study class. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. The short order fry cook. Uh, what do you, what do you want? Come here, come here. You know, that guy, he's a New Yorker guy. And so I had been working on this monologue and so I, we all drove out to this audition. It was a big open call in the Hyatt Regency in Orlando. And, uh, and I auditioned and got the job. And this was 89, right? They were paying me $460 a week. You know, there was, there was housing. And, stuff, and I, it was more money than I'd ever seen in my life. I'm so, I did a soap opera, same thing. 400 yeah. a day. Yeah. and I, I, was, was, I was Rockefeller. Right. And I was like 460 bucks a, a week. I was like, this is crazy. Like I could go make a bunch of money and come back, finish my education, go finish school, you know, get yeah. my degree. And so I said, okay, I'm going to go do this. And I joined what was called Streetmosphere, which was a street improvisational comedy troupe. <laughs> We're working there. 
down the street was the Mickey Mouse Club and there were the kids who later became Justin Timberlake and Christina Aguilera. They used to come and watch us. We used to have our rehearsal and in the and these little kids, these 12-year-olds would stand in the corner watching us and it was Justin and Christina and Britney and all those kids that later became big, huge superstars. And I was working with like some really funny people. It was great. Mo Collins was there. I remember she went on to Mad TV and uh, other people that went on have comedy careers. We were just doing improv and then we'd go out on the street on the lot and we would just play improv games with people. So it actually ended up for me weirdly being like a comedy grad school where I just got to work with all these really funny people, get paid. And, and I was there for a year and then I went and worked at Universal Studios down the street when they opened. And I did that whole theme park thing for about a couple of years. I got cast in this show called the Phantom of the Opera Horror Makeup Show. And it was this stage show where they basically had an audience come in and they would do a kind of thing where they teach you how to do horror makeup in movies, right? But the whole setup of it was there was a host and a guest and the guy was the makeup artist. He would come up. And what I realized was what they had actually done was take an episode of the David Letterman show and just completely recreate it on stage. So the host was David Letterman and the guest was a guy named Mark James, who was a very famous Hollywood makeup artist. And these two guys just had on all the jokes. If you go back and watch the Letterman, it's all the jokes are the same. It's just, it's the transcript of his episode of interviewing yeah. this makeup artist oh that they put on stage and we I would do that. it five times a day for a different audience. And it was great. When did you go to New York? Early 91, I was dating a girl in Florida and she said, I'm moving to New York because I want to do theater. And I had nothing to do because I was sort of like hanging out in Florida and I was like, I want to go to New York. You were doing staged versions of Letterman sketches. Yeah, exactly, exactly. For me, it was at that time I was like, I'm probably going to either go to New York or LA. And, and at the time she was going to New York and I said, I'll come with you. And so I just followed her to New York. Actor Asif Manvi. Monvi and I share a mutual love and respect for our former acting teacher, Wynne Hanman, whom I had the honor to speak with in 2018. Give us two examples who came through your doors, who you just excited you. You knew they had it. They went on to become great actors. Uh, Michael Douglas, he said, you asked me if it was all right if I could call your mother and tell her how good you are. I knew his mother. Right. And he was good. <laughs> yes, he, he was good. He was very good right and what about off. a woman? What's an actress who came through your doors? Allison Janney. Right. Allison Janney. Incredibly talented woman. Yeah, you just give Remarkable. her a role and... Yeah, she can do it all. She can do it all. Right. You'll hear Asif Manvi discuss his work with Wynne Handman later in this episode. To hear more of my conversation with the legendary acting coach, go to heresthething.org. After the break, Asif Monvi tells us how a chance encounter with Sam Shepard and John Malkovich changed the course of his career. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. 
Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change, and certain restrictions may apply. Can I give you a real incentive to lean into your decision to start working out and eating better? I'm Carl, co-founder of Body. That's B-O-D-I. And right now, if you sign up for a one-year subscription to Body, I want to make you an offer you can't refuse. I'll give you 65% off. Look, I know it's not easy to get fit and lose weight, especially if you're trying to figure it out by yourself. But we make it simple. Just follow a program for 20 to 30 minutes day by day and lose 5 to 10 pounds a month. We have over 120 programs that have been tested and proven to work, and almost 300,000 five-star reviews in the App Store to prove it. Body also has complete eating plans and thousands of healthy, delicious recipes. So stop guessing and start seeing results with Body, and I'll give you 65% off your annual membership right now so you save big on the app that CNN underscored named Best Fitness App. So don't wait. Sign up for a year of Body and save 65%. Just go to Body.com. That's Body with an I.com. At Consumer Cellular, you get the same exact coverage as the largest carriers, but for up to half the cost. Same thing, up to half the cost. Up to half the cost for the same thing. 50% the money for 100% the same thing. I hope I'm making myself clear. Consumer Cellular. When freedom calls, we're here to answer. Call us at 1-888-FREEDOM. Half the cost savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single-line 5-gigabyte data plan with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single-line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plan offered by T-Mobile and Verizon May 2023. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Asif Manvi and I have many things in common, including our love of theater and film. And we were both students of the late great acting teacher Wynne Handman. Handman was the director of the American Place Theater in New York City and helped hone the craft of actors like Christopher Walken, Allison Janney, and Monvi himself. What I loved about working with Wynne was that he, he took you where you were. I mean, everybody was at a certain level, but within that, like you saw people who were more accomplished and had better skills at certain things, and some people who were like, I remember there was this one actress. In class, she was a dancer. And this was indicative of the way Wynn sort of worked, where he gave her a scene and he said, look, you're a dancer, so why don't you just use the physicality of the scene? Use your body. Use the thing that you are comfortable with to access the character, you know? And, and I love that about him because he took what you were bringing and used that to help you find the character, whatever it was. If you were a dancer, if you are a singer, if you were funny, if you were more of a dramatic, you know. And, and so it was, it, and he also was really great about like just saying, you know, trust the text. And, and, and I remember like a big thing he would give actors all the time was like just the stillness of like just standing there and letting the text do the work. You don't have to work so hard all the time, you know, and, 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 but I loved Wynn and he actually made my career really because I auditioned for Wynn again, the same girl that I followed up to New York 
came home one day. We were living together. And she came home one day and she said, I'm auditioning for this guy named Wynne Handman. And I had heard about him. And it's funny because I actually, I think two weeks after I arrived in New York, I walked down 46th Street. And in front of me, I see Sam Shepard and John Malkovich, <laughs> right? Malkovich and Sam Shepard walking down the street. And I'm from Florida, you know, like I'm like, holy shit, like what the fuck is, you know? And I was so excited to see these two guys. I followed them and I, I said, where are they coming out of? What building did they just leave? And I looked over and it was the American Place Theater, that they, which was Wynn's Theater, that they had just walked down for and they went down. And, and they were in the middle of rehearsing a show. And I thought to myself, that's the place I want to, I want to work. A place where Malkovich and Sam Shepard walk out of on a Tuesday afternoon, you know? Anyway, so when she said, Win Handman, I said, oh, I know who he is and I want to study with him. And I went in and I, and I had written these monologues because I wanted to do a solo show. And I was doing a little bit of stand-up before that, which I didn't really love but I started writing characters and I brought in these characters into the audition for his class. I got into his class and then I would bring in these characters and he helped me develop my one man show, Sakina's Restaurant, which then years well, that, later- That's what I want to get to. So yeah. how did that evolve? So that evolved basically me coming in twice a week into Wynn's class and writing stuff and bringing it in and performing it and Wynn just giving me direction I remember when uh, I'd written this character that was based on my dad. He was talking to his daughter and he was kind of berating her about the outfit that she was wearing. She was about to go out with her friends and he was sort of talking about, and it was about the culture and the, and the immigrant and he was an immigrant father. And and I remember when saying to me, like this, this monologue is fine. He's like, but it needs some dramatic tension. He, he put a phone next to me and he said, Okay, so you, you're in your restaurant and the phone keeps ringing and you're trying to have this very like private, emotional conversation with your daughter, but the phone keeps ringing and you have to keep picking up the phone to answer because customers are calling to make reservations. And so he did that and, and I'd be in the middle of the monologue and he would go, the phone's ringing, go, go answer the phone, answer the phone. And I'd answer the phone. And then he would pretend to be the customer on the other line. Hello, I'd like a table for three tonight. You know, and then I'd have to be polite on the phone. And he'd be like, okay, hang up. Now go back to your daughter. Where were you? You forgot where you were. So now what we, what we, you know, and so we would do this. And it was, it sort of taught me how to write for the stage as well as just working on my own stuff, you know? And, and, and over the course of several years, we kind of worked on different characters and developed it. And then I ended up working with a director who helped me shape the whole show and put it together. And then Wynn came and saw it. I did it at the West Bank downstairs theater. And then he said, okay, let's get this up at the American Place Theater. And then he did. He put it up wow. at the American Place Theater. And this is the story I told at his memorial. So I'm doing the show. This is 1998. The New York Times comes to review it. We get this love letter in the New York Times. And it was the greatest day of my life. It was like I woke sure. up that morning. There's a love letter in the Times. So the show, you know, we're selling tickets. It's a small theater, less than 100 seats. And we've been running for about a month. And I get an offer to go do a, another play at the Manhattan Theater Club. And it was a play by Terrence McNally called Corpus Christi. 
And it was about the gay Jesus and it was getting all of this attention in the media. People were really up in arms about the Christian right was protesting the theater. Terrence McNally was, you know, and it was a kind of a sexy group of young actors who were going to be in this thing. And they wanted me to play one of the disciples. My agents called me in and they said, listen, you, you got the review. You've run the show for four weeks now. You've got this other thing. Let's go do it. You know, it's going to be a big, it's on the cover of Time Magazine. It's going to be, you know, it's going to be huge. And I called Wynn and I said, Wynn, you know, everyone's telling me I should close my show and go do this other play. And I remember he just said, are you crazy? This is your show. This is the show that you wrote, that you created. It's you. It's all you. You're doing seven characters. Like, it's, why would you close that to go be part of an ensemble with a bunch of other guys, you know, with a small part or whatever? I said, well, you know, it's going to be sexy. It's going to be on the cover of Time Magazine. The reporters are yeah. outside. And he said, don't worry about that. He said, I'm telling you right now, this will be the biggest mistake of your life if you do this. And I remember him saying that to me and he said to me, he said, look, Asif, here's what I'll do. I will keep, and I still get emotional when I think about this because nobody does this in our business. The show had been running since June, it was July. He said, I will keep you open till January of next year, whether I'm making money or I'm not making money. I guarantee I will keep you open. I won't close you. And he goes, you won't get that guarantee from those guys. He goes, I will keep you open. And he did. And, and the other show closed in two weeks. Wow. Terrence McNally closed in two weeks. Yeah, he closed That's in two weeks. Believe. The New York Times killed it. And it was nothing, about, nothing against that show. They all, you know, it was had great, Michael Hall was in it. Like a lot of great actors were in it. But for me in that moment, it would have been the wrong decision. And, and when made that promise to me and I couldn't, I went to my agents and I said, look, he's going to keep me open. For six months, like how am I, you know, he's not going to, and, and he did, and he kept his word. And what happened in those six months were that word got around that there was this young Indian kid who was doing this play about an Indian family and this Indian restaurant, and no one had done that on the New York stage. There was no shows that were about a South Asian immigrant family written and performed by a South Asian. And people got word of it and the word of mouth started spreading. People started coming from all over Long Island and New Jersey and upstate, you know, from all over the boroughs. We'd have busloads of people coming to see the play because there had never been a play about the South Asians, Indians, Pakistanis, Bangladeshis, even other immigrants. They'd never seen this play before. They'd never, you know, and so it was mm. such a specific thing. So we stayed open. Our audiences grew. We won two Obie Awards and I got a movie out of it. So, you know what I mean? Well, we all, I think we all have a similar thing where there's a fork in the road. Yeah. And, and, and what I always tell people is if the circumstances present themselves, they may come to me and say, oh, what, what should I do? And I'll say, I suggest that because... Your instincts have gotten you here thus far. You stick with those instincts. Yeah. The business will always ask you at some point, or typically will ask you at some point, to abandon your instincts. Yeah. I'll never forget I got to a place where I did a show off-Broadway, and we had a love letter from the Times, and they were going to move the show to Broadway, and instead I was offered my first million-dollar payday in the movie business. <sighs> wow. And my agent looked at me, and my, my agent was like, come on, you schmuck. 
They're offering you a million dollars here. And it's like, you know, of course we're going to tank the Broadway production of this precious little uh, dark comedy. This was Prelude to a Kiss. And Mm. I'm going to go off and do uh, this movie. And I wrote in my memoir, I said, that's when I knew I had made the mistake that changed my career. Because hmm. once I allowed people to push me into a corner where it was about chasing money, and it was about a type of movie stardom where people are like, you know, we're just going to keep throwing it against the wall till something sticks. Who cares if you got to spend the next two years doing four movies that are complete steaming piles of shit? <laughs> and you're never going to have any creative nutrition for the next two years. You're playing a different game now. You have been asked to come and play a different game. And I look back at that time of my life, just like you with your play, and I go, I made the wrong choice. I made the wrong choice. So you did Disgraced at Lincoln Center. They They won the Pulitzer Prize. Yeah. Man, that was another one of those things that... So Ayad Akhtar, who wrote Disgraced, who is one of my close friends to this day, he is a brilliant writer and, 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 you know, I read the first draft of it. He had sent it to me. I was at the daily show and, and he sent it to me and he said, I want you to read this thing. I'm going to do a reading of it. And I read this play that he had written and I thought it was one of the most dangerous things that I'd ever read. And I was like, you can't do this. Like you can't, you can't do this play. What are you, what are you nuts? And he was like, no, no, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to do it. And I was, I was like, I was so terrified and excited to do this reading of this play. I didn't know that there was going to be a production or anything. I was just like, even just the reading, I was like, this is, this character is saying things and doing things that is just, we haven't seen this perspective at anywhere. It was post 9-11. He had written this character that was a, a Pakistani lawyer who, who sounded who was speaking the words of the conservative right. It was a self-hating Muslim. Um, And it was one of the most amazing roles. So ultimately we ended up doing it at Lincoln Center. And uh, and I got to do it. It won the Pulitzer. And it won the Pulitzer there. Wow. And it was one of the most, other than Sakina's Restaurant, it was maybe the other most satisfying theatrical experience I've ever had in my life. Like just playing that role because there were no roles written like that. It was it was a complex brown man living in a post 9-11 America, uh, dealing with really complicated issues and of identity. And, and Ayad wrote it beautifully and dangerously. And, you know, he's gone on to become a very successful American playwright. And that was, I think, his first real play that got a lot of attention. And then I was supposed to do it on Broadway. And it was one of the great heartbreaks of my career. I had signed on to do this HBO series, it was called The Brink. Tim Robbins and Jack Black. I remember, and, yeah. Yeah, and we did it. And it was great. And and I love all the people involved with that. But I had signed on to do it. And we couldn't make the dates work. We couldn't, the, the producers of the Broadway production. And so I had to bow out of the Broadway show. And it was one of the great heartbreaks for me of career-wise. Because I would have given anything to have done it on Broadway. I remember like the debates that we would have with the audience. You know you're doing something amazing when you walk out of the theater and the audience all feels like they saw something different. Like mm-hmm. you'd have a family of people come up to me and they go, 
well, no, your character was the villain. They go, no, 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 no. The, and the husband would argue with his wife. No, 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 she was the villain. No, are you kidding me? Like, yeah. no, the other, this There's guy was debate. the villain. There's debate. It was the debate of like, of like, who was the bad guy in this play? And I remember like it being, and Ayad said it to me when we were rehearsing. He said, I want the audience to constantly shift allegiances and to never know. Like once they decide that one person is bad, it shifts and they go, oh, wait a minute. No, this person is actually the person I agree with. Oh no, that person's the person I agree. When you're dealing with that kind of writing, it's really rich and, and amazing. Actor Asif Manvi. If you're enjoying this conversation, be sure to subscribe to Here's the Thing on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, Asif Manvi shares how becoming a father later in life has changed him. Really. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change, and certain restrictions may apply. Can I give you a real incentive to lean into your decision to start working out and eating better? I'm Carl, co-founder of Body. That's B-O-D-I. And right now, if you sign up for a one-year subscription to Body, I want to make you an offer you can't refuse. I'll give you 65% off. Look, I know it's not easy to get fit and lose weight, especially if you're trying to figure it out by yourself, but we make it simple. Just follow a program for 20 to 30 minutes day by day and lose 5 to 10 pounds a month. We have over 120 programs that have been tested and proven to work, and almost 300,000 five-star reviews in the App Store to prove it. Body also has complete eating plans and thousands of healthy, delicious recipes. So stop guessing and start seeing results with Body, and I'll give you 65% off your annual membership right now so you save big on the app that CNN underscored named Best Fitness App. So don't wait. Sign up for a year of Body and save 65%. Just go to Body.com. That's Body with an I.com. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals. It's not about being the best in the world. It's about doing what's best for the world. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. After starring on Broadway and winning an Obie, Asif Manvi showcased his comedic chops as a Daily Show correspondent for almost a decade. It was the result of an audition he almost dismissed. August 9th, 2006, 
I get a call from my manager. She says, the Daily Show is auditioning. They want to see you. And I thought this was going to be some stupid thing where I go down there and I, you know, pretend to be the voice of Saddam Hussein in some stupid thing or something, you know, whatever. So they called me and I, and I remember at the, that, that day I was, happened to be writing a letter to my ex-girlfriend who I just found out had gotten engaged. And I was having one of those days where I was like sitting there writing a letter to her because I realized we were never going to get back together. And so that's the day I'm having, I get this call. I said, can I not go today? Can they see me tomorrow? Cause I'm, I'm, I'm in kind of an emotional state today. I don't feel much like, she said, no, no, it's today. Three o'clock is the cutoff. Either you go today or it's done. Yeah, yeah. And I said, okay, fine. I put on a suit and tie. I walk down to the daily show and I, I, I go in and, and, and the girl there says, you know, uh, here are the sides. And she gives me, you know, and I, and I, you know, I, I had this kind of cockiness where I was like, I've been on Broadway. I've done TV movie, you know, like I, this is, you of know, course daily they want show. Me. Right. Yeah, of course. So I said, okay. And so I, and so I'm looking over all this stuff I got to say. And, and she comes in and she says, John's ready to see you. And I said, oh, you know, can I have a few more minutes to work on this material? She goes, no, no, it's on the teleprompter. You don't need to memorize it. And I remember just being like, oh, fucking this teleprompter. What is this? This is fucking, this is for amateurs, you know? So I go in there and I didn't know what I was doing. I meet John Stewart. He's lovely, very friendly. And I remember he said, have you ever performed in front of a live audience before? And I said, I looked at him and I said, dude, I've been on Broadway. And he was like, oh, okay. All right. Mr. Broadway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's Mr. Broadway to you. Yeah, Mr. Yeah. Broadway. And I just did my best Stephen Colbert impression. That's all I knew to do. And I read it off the thing. I get done. John turns to me. He says, that was great. Welcome to The Daily Show. And he shook my hand. And I was on the show that very evening. Jesus. And the, the crazy thing is, it, ha- it so happened that Bruce Springsteen came to see the show that night and he was sitting in the audience and he came backstage after the show to say hi to John. And I got to meet him and he congratulated me. And he said, I heard it was your first time. You're really good. And so my day went from like writing this letter and sitting there like in this kind of, you know, funk to being on The Daily Show, meeting Bruce Springsteen. Yeah. Best of luck in your future, Mary. At the end of the day, it's Mary who? Yeah, exactly. So it was one of those crazy things where in my day just, it, it, and then John, you know, said, look, this is a one-off, but I want you back. I'm going to call you back. And so he just kept calling me back for about four or five months, which was sort of like where he was kind of, I think, really kind of auditioning me. And then after about a few months, he offered me a contract to be on the show. And then that was just, again, talk about getting to work with some of the funniest, smartest people in the business. You right. know, I got I got to work with some great Stuart people. Is who a, are Stuart still, is kind of on an island of his own, really. He really yeah, is. And, and also just the writers on that show and all the people, Oliver and Sam and, you know, all those guys and the writers and the producers and... And and many of them I still speak to today and I'm still friends with and, and they are some of the funniest people and smartest people in the business. What I loved about Stewart, what I loved was he had this kind of energy feel to him, which was the audience is screaming and the audience is cheering. I remember that studio was somewhat smaller mm-hmm. and it wasn't a very big crowd. And everyone's screaming and cheering for him. And he'd sit there at the desk with almost this demeanor like, can I talk now? Yeah. 
Right. Can I get like he wasn't there to get bathed in love and take a bow yeah. and yes, everyone, it's me. He almost had this funny attitude, like you know, are you finished? Can we get on with my monologue now, please? Right. He, right. I mean, I thought he just played it perfectly. Now beyond acres of TV shows and films, and but uh, you worked with Merchant Ivory. Yeah. I met with Merchant and Ivory in New York like in the 80s. Mm-hmm. I'll never forget in the old days, you'd sit in a casting call and every actor in Manhattan that was your competition was in a folding chair down that row uh-huh. with yeah. you. Yeah. Here's Kevin Bacon and here's right. this guy and here's this guy and you're all in a row to get to audition for Eight Men Out for John Sayles. <laughs> right. You know, you would have cut your hand off to be in a John Sayles movie back then. And yeah. all this kind of stuff. And you work with Merchant Ivory. What was that experience like? It was amazing. You know, that was the movie that I got after Sakina's Restaurant. When that New York Times review came out, Ismail Merchant came to see the show mm. the next, the following mm. week. How wonderful. Um, How wonderful to get cast in a great film from a play. Yeah. Well, he came to see it and he shook my hand after the show. And, you know, Ismail was this god, um, you know, especially as a young South Asian actor, this guy had made it in a way that very few people in Hollywood had made it, yes. from, you know, of my background. And so, Revered, yeah. Uh, he was in, so I remember he, he came up to me and he said, hello, my name is Ismail Merchant and I would like to take you out to dinner. And I said, yeah, terrific. And then he took me to a restaurant. So a couple of weeks later, he called, he, you know, he kept in touch and, and called me and he said, I want to take you this. And he took me to this restaurant that he claimed that he owned, yet nobody knew him there. So- <laughs> I'm a secret <laughs> owner. All the <laughs> restaurants I own, I keep it a secret. Yeah, exactly. So we went there and he didn't even know the Raiders' name. He kept getting it wrong. And, 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 and but he's like, I own this place, you know. Anyway, he gave me this book called The Mystic Masseur. And he said, I'm making this into a film and I want you to play the lead. And now imagine, this is me having done nothing. I've done no, like, movies. At this point, I've done some <laughs> guest spots on Law and & Order and, you know. And, Let me check and my schedule here, Ismail. Yeah. Yeah. And he said, I want you to play the lead in this movie. We're going to shoot it in Trinidad and it's going to be amazing. And the uh, legendary uh, actor Om Puri is going to be in it. One of the great uh, character actors of Indian cinema. And he said, uh, it's based on this V.S. Naipaul novel. And uh, I want you to play the, the the main character. And, you know, what, what was I going to do? I went home and I read the book in like literally an afternoon. I I, I devoured the book. And then I called his office and I said, yes, I'm doing it. I'm very excited. Was it a good experience? It was, a, it was a tremendous experience. We went to Trinidad. We shot this movie. It was chaos. The way a smile worked was he would find a beautiful location and then just say, we're going to shoot a scene here. And I was, and of course, I'm this young actor coming from theater and, you know, and, and I'm sort of married, I'm holding my script like this, you know, and he would say, well, this is beautiful, we're going to shoot a scene right here, we're going to shoot it. And I said, okay, smile, I said, you know what, and he said, you're going to get on your bicycle and you're going to ride down, we're going to get a beautiful shot of this beautiful trees and this thing. And so I said to him, and of course, I'm, this is my first movie and I'm trying to, I'm using all of my craft, you know, like everything I know about being an actor. And I said to him, I said, Ismail, okay, this is great. This is not in the script, by the way, the scene. It's not, it's nowhere in the script. He said, don't worry about the script. He said, don't worry about it. It's just, I would go to, and I said, okay. The script is a mere suggestion. Yeah. And I said to him, I said, Ismail, just tell me this. I said, tell me this. Where am I coming from? (laughs) Just tell me where I'm coming from. 
He said, you're coming from your house. I said, okay, great. I said, great, great. And where am I going? Just so I know that for my motivation. He said, you are going, and there's a character that Om Puri played in the movie called Ram Logan. He said, you're going to Ram Logan's shop. That's where you're going. And I said, okay. And then I looked at him and I said, Ismail, in this movie, it has been well established that Ram Logan's shop is across the street from my house. <laughs> and he said, you are taking the scenic route. Yes. Just get on the bike and ride it. <laughs> it was always very like running and gunning. Like he, there was one scene where he wanted me and Sanjeev Bhaskar, who was another actor in the film, he wanted us to be under this hatch roof doing the scene. And above us, he wanted these chickens. And he wanted these chickens just to be hanging out above the roof. And he thought it was very funny to have these chickens, but the chickens wouldn't stay on the roof. They kept running away. So he got the guy, one of the, 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 the kids on the set, he got him with a staple gun. Oh, God. <laughs> he got a string. He tied the string to the chickens, and then he stapled the string to the roof, and the chickens were, like, kicking, and they were trying to get out, but they couldn't yeah. get away. And he got his shot. He got his shot. Now, I just want to finish by saying that the thing I'm most grateful for or I'm, or I'm the most admiring of, is that while you had the opportunity to access great material, when you had that opportunity presented to you, you didn't squander that opportunity. And that's really, really, really amazing to me and really impressive. Because when that material comes your way, you don't know when it's going to come again. Yeah. Like when, yeah. like when Wynn said to you, don't pass this up and go off and do this. And then Corpus Christi dies in two weeks. You know, he knew, which is that when you have something good in front of you, that other stuff's going to take care of itself. Well, we want to believe yeah. that. Now, you've done all this important work and all this great dramatic work, and you've driven it right off a cliff by hosting a game show. Um, <laughs> uh, you and I have that profound thing in common. And then add to that the fact that you had children at the age of 54. Is that I correct? I know. I know. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm 64, and we've had six oh. kids in eight years. Yeah, man. Wow. You've just got, you've got a flock of them. I, you know, we had him, and, and, and honestly, I have to say, he's the greatest thing that happened to me. Like, he, he, he gave me a kind of, talk about an access to, like, humanity and just, like, as, sure. you know, as an artist and just filling sure. up your, just your being. You know, there's certain things in life which you don't know that you need, until you get them and then you go, oh, this is what my soul has been craving. And now he is one of the funniest, smartest little guys. And he just helped, and, and I realized that like, oh, I'm glad I did it now. I'm not one of those people yeah. that says, I wish I'd done it 10 years ago sure. because I'm because I'm mentally ready for it now. You know what I mean? Like I like when I was like in my 30s, I wouldn't have been able to do this. I would have fucked it up. I would have just been like too much of a mess trying to do other, you know, I like, like, I feel like I'm in a place in my career now where I'm, I'm, I'm feeling, I'm feeling more settled. I feel like I've, okay, you know, I, I can do this. I can pay attention to him in a way that I couldn't have if I had done it much earlier. And what you also are is a man that can keep his family whole. You don't have to send your kid to Bahrain to live with his grandparents. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, no, it's true. You no, have a I, home I, and you've got yeah. a steady amount of work. Yeah. And you've got the respect of people in the business and things are good to go and your family yeah. is together and yeah. whole. Yeah. Well, listen, this was really a joy. Thank you. My thanks to Asif Manvi. 
This episode was recorded at CDM Studios in New York City. We're produced by Kathleen Russo, Zach McNeese, and Maureen Hoban. Our engineer is Frank Imperial. Our social media manager is Danielle Gingrich. I'm Alec Baldwin. Here's the Thing is brought to you by iHeartRadio. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like when the tailgate party shows up at your house after the big win. Everything's great until the hot plate gets too hot for the tablecloth. Now your kitchen's up in smoke. And if you don't have the right home insurance coverage, the cost to fix this could sideline your savings. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Not available in every state based on coverage selected, subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. And that makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals. It's not about being the best in the world. It's about doing what's best for the world. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota.